Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Nine Fin, a podcast not about clouds or Finland or the number nine, but about the debt capital markets and all the fun stuff that happens within them. I'm your host, Will Cager Smith, and today I'm joined by Chris Wright of Crescent Capital. Chris has worked at Crescent since 2001 and is currently the firm's head of private markets. I'll let him explain for himself what that means in a second. But first things first, welcome, Chris. Thanks, Will. Uh, happy to be here. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, so maybe first of all, you could just kind of explain the, the various areas that, that you oversee and, and the, um, you know, the funds that you oversee play in, in, in the, the credit markets. Yeah, great. Um, well, look, Crescent Capital has been around since the early 90s, and today we're about 43 billion of, of, of AUM. I focus my time and effort really on our private markets, which uh, encompasses everything from senior debt all the way through junior debt and even minority equity investments. And we address uh, everything from the lower middle market uh, up through the uh, upper middle market. We are a global platform. Um, and so we, you know, we've, we, we invest in both, uh, the U S and, and Europe as well as, uh, as Asia. Right. Okay. And you're joining us today from the, from the West coast, correct? That's where the you're made. city of angels, Los right. Angeles. So we just, uh, we just put out an article today about the, the actors strike, which, um, obviously is taking a lot of headlines and it feels like that moment's been a long time coming. Um, and I guess that is a good seg into the main topic I wanted to quiz you about today, which has also been a long time coming. It, distress yeah. in the credit markets and how it is or isn't playing out right now. Um, I mean, basically, it feels like for months now or even years, I guess, we've been hearing about how the next big wave of distress in the credit markets is just around the corner. And it's almost a cliche now to say that this is the most well-telegraphed recession or credit cycle in the history of modern markets. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like behind the scenes, we're already starting to see a pickup in what you might call sort of slightly tricky or non-traditional deals in the capital markets to figure out solutions for companies that just can't handle the same level of debt as they used to. So I guess my first question would be, do you think it's fair to say that the next wave of distress is actually already here? It's just kind of happening kind of more quietly and behind the scenes? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, what may be different today than over the last 20 or 30 years is the trajectory and the direction of rates. Um, you know, we've really gone through a very long period of uh, rates getting pushed down, and that has continued to push out the distress cycle as the Fed has stepped in and provided liquidity into the economy. And so certainly now we're in an environment that is quite the opposite. In fact, um, you know, we're, we're, we're in a rate tightening cycle and we're seeing rates increase. Um, the Fed has done a very good job, uh, you know, at least up until this point, at sort of forestalling any, uh, you know, real breakage in the economy. We see default rates continuing to hover at very low rates, they might be moving up slightly, but uh, they're still at historically low uh, levels. Um, but yes, we certainly are seeing stress put on companies as a result of the specifically the increase in the base rates. And when you lever a company in 2020 or 2021 uh, with the implicit assumption of a base rate at sub 1%, and today we're in a base rate environment of north of 5%, um, that dynamic doesn't always work. And so um, 
I would say to your question, we are, well, I would say is early stages of seeing some of the breakage. Um, I think we're easily managing through it. When I look at our portfolio, our portfolio continues to be very strong and we are in an environment where it's just a, a rate environment phenomena versus an underlying company performance because the underlying economic conditions that we're in today continue to be very strong and that is mm -hmm. um you know continue to support us uh, you know strengthen the economy yeah that makes sense it's kind of like the uh, i feel like the wave metaphor that i use doesn't really work these days it's sort of like a, a gradual rise in the sea level maybe yeah you know the, the the what we've been batting around here is you know is it a, a tsunami is a maturity wall a tsunami or, or you know do we have a, a slow wave coming at us that will be manageable in the distress cycle right 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 yeah makes sense um okay so two pretty big situations i just want to mention um because they're both examples of companies sort of right-sizing their capital structures to suit a i guess you could call it a downgraded growth trajectory or just lower earnings basically um yeah. but both in very different ways one of them is carvana and the other one is finastra um and there's been some news out about finastra this week so maybe let's start with carvana they just got a restructuring well they are doing a restructuring deal um with the support of some big creditors um and the big news there was that the, the pact between apollo and pimco and some of the other big lenders there seemed to help and kind of avoid help avoid any nasty up tiering or drop down transactions, you know, the sort of lender on lender violence that we've, we've seen in recent years. Um, so I suppose my question is, do you think that deal is at all instructive for restructurings in this credit cycle? Or do you think it's a bit of a kind of unique situation? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that the uh... You know, I, I do think we are going to see situations where lenders understand that by working together, the outcome um, may be better than if you use the old methodology of getting to 50.1% majority and then trying to extract value out of the 49.9% that you're leaving back, mm -hmm. creating that lender on lender violence. And so, you know, I think in, you know, as we look forward with the growth of private credit, with the size of checks that private lenders and so forth uh, can write, um, and with the availability of capital and the sustainability of that availability of capital behind them, I do think we are going to see more situations where lenders work together to optimize the outcome for themselves mm -hmm. and it expedites it, it you know it it, it it quickens the whole entire process so i do think the company is better off because what you want your management teams doing is focusing on running the business not focusing on negotiating covenants and restructurings mm -hmm. and so i do think that is a very good example you know the, the carvana example is is going to be a, a very good template to use going forward and i think it does sort of indicate the shift in the markets in the presence of private credit and some of the value that it can add when things don't go as planned mm -hmm. that makes sense and and i guess the the finaster example also speaks to private credit and its involvement because that deal is sort of anchored by private credit and again that's not really a restructuring per se but I feel like in some ways it's actually more indicative of 
today's sort of flavor of stress or distress in the credit markets. It's a sort of struggling company. It's a software company as well, which has been a, a big sort of, um, it, you know, uh, a bit of a negative story um, over the past couple of years. Struggling company, looming maturity, clear demand for senior debt. Um, they need to right size the capital structure to deal with the fact that earnings are lower, but there's not quite enough demand from senior lenders to get the deal over the line. So junior capital is kind of the only way to fix the situation and the sponsor sort of sharing some of the, you know, basically finding a partner to, to come in at a subordinated level to, to get the refi done. So does, do you, do you think, do you think that's more or less of a kind of blueprint for today's um, sort of distress situations than, than Carvana? Yeah. Look, I think there's a number of questions to unpack there in, in your question. And I think there's a lot of interesting things from that question that we're seeing the early stages of in the marketplace. To address that directly, um, yes, I think it naturally makes sense when uh, a company was financed in the old base rate environment. Today, the debt service burden is probably uh, is, 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 is too high. And so you need to have some relief. What we have found as sponsors have been very supportive of companies and it speaks to the amount of equity checks that over the last five years sponsors have put in. So it's a collective effort that we're all going to have to put forward to work together to solve these issues. Now, junior debt is going to, in my view, junior debt is going to become increasingly important to help provide runway for these companies um, that are over levered in this rate environment. So now you have a situation where company is performing, it's a good company, there is equity value, it is overburdened by cash interest today. And so how do you solve that? You can put in equity, you can bring in a junior lender to help pay down the cash paid debt. That junior debt will have a pick component. That junior lender will get paid a yield. It's gonna be expensive. Uh, but less expensive than equity um, and less expensive than giving a portion of the equity to the senior lenders. And so that template, I think we're seeing play out in a couple situations. There's a couple more in the pipeline where we're at early stages of. And then when you look at the maturity walls, you know, the maturity wall in the BSL market is relatively benign over the next couple of years. I think it's less than 10% over the next two years, but that jumps to roughly 22%, um, you know, in the next three years. And so I think as we look to the refinancing of that maturity, well, you're going to see more and more situations where junior debt becomes a critical component to reducing the cash pay component and affecting a, uh, a refinancing. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like a few years ago, um, the idea of sponsors putting in new equity, like new cash equity themselves, or even of finding a kind of a junior capital provider to step in with something like a pick preferred instrument. Um, it was generally seen as like a massive red flag within the credit markets for any kind of regular way credit investor. And it had a lot of negative connotation. Do you feel like there's kind of less shame in it now? I'm using, you know, air quotes to, uh, yeah. around around shape yeah. but like less <laughs> negative attachment to it yeah well i think the dynamic is different today right when that happened five years ago or 10 years ago it was generally the result of a poorly performing company 
You know, you had a situation where a company became overlevered because performance was facing headwinds, cash flow was down, and it became overburdened because of poor performance. Today, we're in a little different situation. And so today, we're seeing companies that are just doing fine on a performance basis. Cash flows can actually be growing. Revenue is growing. But the service burden, the cash service burden on the, as a result of the base rate environment is the issue. And so as capital providers, we look at that as we can solve that. We can provide runway. Now, what you're going to want is you're going to want everybody to put skin in the game. So you want equity to come in to pay down debt a bit. You then want, you know, maybe pick type capital, whether it's a whole co note or a preferred you want that to come in to reduce that, that the, the cash burn. And then you want the senior lenders, you know, to, you know, and they will, they will get paid down, um, but roll into a new deal. And so I don't think there's any negative connotation around that type of dynamic. What you're doing is you're solving for the rate environment. You're not solving for a poorly performing com- uh, company. Mm-hmm. Well, to that point though, I, I do sometimes wonder if, um, you know, for companies that are sort of backed into this into this corner, from the company's perspective and from the sponsor's perspective, does this, especially a strategy like adding a, a big slice of pick preferred debt, is there a risk that it kind of kneecaps future growth? Um, you know, because the as much as it kind of eases the interest burden right now and allows management to focus on managing the company and, and you know, it staves off a bankruptcy, which helps out the sponsor and obviously avoids a bad outcome for them it's still like a huge slice of debt that needs to be paid back at some point. And it just balloons with the added yeah. principle from the, from the pit component. So it's like uh, the solution now creates a, another problem to deal with down the line. And it's a problem that could actually reduce the returns for the, the sponsor because they've got that giant slice of, of pick to, to pay off at some point. Yeah, certainly that it creates overhang, right? I mean, it is a growing overhang. It, it can be an expensive growing overhang on the company. A lot of these situations, though, where investments were made in 2020 and 2021, as I mentioned earlier, sponsors put in 40, 50, even 60% equity checks. So they have a massive check to protect. Since that time, valuations have actually gone up or are flat. The company has grown, and so enterprise value has grown. So they're actually sitting on a gain, even though they have a significant equity check in there and a lot of money. And so they have a lot to protect, and so they have a lot of skin in the game. And I think that's a good dynamic for everybody, right? When everyone's interests are aligned, let's provide some runway. One of the implicit assumptions in there is that there will be a Fed pivot likely at some point or that rates will come down. They can then refinance the entire structure out at that point if they want. And so what you're really doing is you're just providing that runway. And from their standpoint, yes, you might have expensive paper in there. It is going to create overhang on your equity, but you're protecting a massive investment and potentially a gain. So that is a um, you know, that, that, that is an action that makes sense for your investors. Mm-hmm. 
I guess it's the same with uh, you know, continuation funds and that kind of thing right now. It's it's sort of like the it's a needs must situation. Um and I think some of the some of the stigma around that kind of activity is is starting to disappear because it's just it's one of the only solutions that you have to protect an investment right now. Yeah, exactly. And I you know, look, I think what's important what you're gonna find with this is that these junior debt the junior debt capital is gonna come in from the hands of friendly lenders, right? What you're not going to see is heavily syndicated preferred offerings or, or hold co offerings. What's going to be important for the sponsor is that they know that they have a good partner in the capital structure with them, um, because that is going to be obviously in the middle part of the capital structure. Um, you want to have someone that is willing to work with you, that takes a long-term perspective, uh, can move with speed, um, and will live up to their commitments. And so I think there is a little bit of a changing dynamic there as well, where that is going to be more and more critical as we move forward for that type of investment. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, so just to delve into that in a bit more detail, maybe you can talk a bit about the ways that Crescent as a, you know, as a junior capital partner sometimes uh, can help out in these sort of situations. I mean, what sort of structures what, what sort of companies are you looking for? What sort of situations are you looking for? What kind of structures do you prefer? Um, and what kind of return hurdle are you are you looking for? Like how much of a return does there have to be there for uh, for that level of risk to make sense to you? Yeah. So look, we have been a junior capital provider since the early 90s. That was sort of how we built the business around what we had called our mezzanine business. Um, and we closed our eighth fund earlier this year. And so we have a significant footprint, uh, a significant track record of investing across cycles. Um, traditionally, that business has been where we are financing uh, sponsor buyouts. And so we're partnering with the financial sponsor and providing that junior capital in the context of a new buyout or add-on acquisitions. And so it's been in... Um, you know, typically newer transactions. But at the same time, the opportunity set today is to partner with those same types of sponsors, invest in the same types of companies and industries. And when we talk about industries, um, you know, we focus our time and effort on generally gonna be more service oriented type industries, consumer services, business services. Um, we do some software, we do some healthcare. So those types of low CapEx, high free cash flow businesses is where we focus on and we, we, you know, our belief is they tend to be more resilient to uh, economic volatility. Um, mm -hmm. And that lends itself to being in that middle part of the capital structure. And so that that's sort of how we have built our business. And, um, you know, we are very excited about the opportunity ahead of us, what we see over the next, you know, one, two, three years to be able to deploy capital. You asked about kind of return profiles of those uh, of those types of investments. And today, you know, what we're seeing is kind of mid to high teens uh, type yields. Now, it is more pick oriented than cash oriented. Um, but we find, you know, that type of return profile is very attractive when you think about it relative to even senior debt or equity. Um, we think you're very, you know, it's a, it's a very attractive risk adjusted return profile in today's market. Mm -hmm. And with those kinds of situations, do you find there's any difference in terms of how they play out and how those negotiations are done 
when it's a kind of middle market private credit backed company compared to a larger cap company with a broadly syndicated debt structure is the is it is it all the same or is the process different based on which area the company falls in yeah, no, look, I mean, it is certainly different. And, and, and there's different use cases, right? I haven't mentioned necessarily the different use cases for this type of capital. We've been kind of focusing in this conversation more on the stress distress. So, you know, where the opportunity is to pay down cash paid debt. Um, there's also a very strong argument of the use case to support add-on acquisition. So a sponsor may have a full leverage, um, but they might identify uh, an add-on opportunity. It may be significant, maybe be smaller. Um, they want to keep the existing senior loan or unit tranche in place. Maybe they'll put in some equity or we would you know, ask them to put in some equity. And then you finance that acquisition with junior debt. You're obviously mm -hmm. bringing on additional EBITDA. And so your leverage pro profile theoretically will stay the same or you know, get slightly better or worse. Uh, but you have a larger company um, and you know, in an ideal situation there equity will come in alongside from the sponsor as, and as well. And would that also be pick? That would likely be, I mean, look, you, 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 you would hope to get maybe some sort of cash component to it. Mm -hmm. um, but the situations that we're seeing, um, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to solve for cash flows. And so you don't want to be just focused on one year. You want to be able to look out and provide some runway and allow that management team to integrate the acquisition and to be able to extract the synergies as a result of that acquisition. Um, so it will be generally pick, but you know, in an ideal situation, we're gonna see a little bit of a cash component as well. So you've got the, 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 the pay down scenario use case, you've got the add-on acquisition uh, use case, um, and, then, and then you could do just a, a, a full restructuring um, that's kind of what you're seeing in, in, in Finestra, right? Where they're just doing a full restructuring where they're putting in uh, private first and a private second. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, uh, you know, that's another use case, obviously. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So I just want to switch um, for a second and talk about a different type of uh, loan structure that's also been quite popular in the private credit space, um, which is ARR loans. Yeah. Um, I feel like they they were kind of a hot topic before the pandemic and then they were a hot topic just after the pandemic when there was a sort of boom in in software with work from home and that kind of thing um and they kind of continue to be a bit of a hot topic but quite a divisive one um we wrote about the new relic buyout the other day which is being funded by an arr loan led by blue owl um and so obviously blue owl is one of the lenders that like arr loans but from the people we speak to they're um they're kind of like Marmite. I don't know if that means anything to you, that metaphor. <laughs> uh, some people love it, some people hate it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so where do you stand on, on ARI lines, uh, ARR loans? You know, love, love them or hate them? Yeah. Uh, I will say we have not done any ARR loans, not because I don't love them. What we try to focus on in our underwriting is understanding history and understanding how companies perform you know, during economic volatility. And so we have not been able to get our arms around how these things will perform during a cycle. And so we are sort of cautiously waiting to see how this plays out and then we'll make a decision. We could be proven to be wrong in that analysis um, and maybe they will perform great. 
Um, but on the other hand, there's certainly a lot of questions around them. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll kind of simply say, I don't love them, I don't hate them, but we have not executed on any ARR loans. Very diplomatic answer, like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just, just going back to Carvana and Finastra, I guess we kind of touched on this earlier, but the other feature of both of those deals is that they're both relatively equitable transactions for lenders in the sense that there wasn't a kind of huge creditor on creditor fight, um, less of the kind of legal wrangling, people, people playing nice generally. Um, but there's another situation with uh, Lumen out there at the moment where in that case, bondholders are alleging a fraudulent transfer of assets um uh some basically some sort of covenant alleged covenant shenanigans um and there's also been deals in the not too distant past like envision healthcare um where sponsors have made use of of potential kind of loopholes in the in the covenant package to engender some uh, some lender on lender violence um and i feel like that sort of deal is the kind of cut and thrust that people have been warning about in this credit cycle for a while after years and years of docs getting looser in the kind of mid to late 2010s and then the early 2020s before the market fell off in 2022. Um, so do you think that in this kind of new credit cycle, do you think the exploitation of weak documentation is going to be as bad as people say, or do you think it's maybe been overhyped a little bit? Yeah, so so, so, I think what I'd like to do is just address kind of the private credit side of it, right? Not mm -hmm. necessarily opine on what we may see in the BSL market. Uh, you know, my focus is more on the private credit side. And, and what I would say is, is that is a very relationship-driven market. And what you don't see is the situations where you're taking advantage, the sponsors are taking advantage of all these types of loopholes, because I think that is a very short-sighted approach. And if you are, you know, sponsors get known or companies get known to be taking advantage of the private lenders and private creditors, you know, they're going to see the execution that they receive down the road is going to be less than ideal. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't think you're going to see that. We have not seen that in, in our business. Um, obviously, uh, we're very focused on closing those loopholes. And um, I think you do get some additional benefit because sponsors aren't as concerned with those when they know who the lenders are. Mm -hmm. And they know that, hey, if the company does encounter some issues, we're going to be proactive. We've got some lenders. We're giving them monthly financials. We're they're speaking to the management teams. We can be proactive so we don't get to the point where it comes to that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not as concerned about those loopholes. Obviously, we have to be very diligent and, and very sharp in our documentation. Um, but again, this is a relationship lending, um, uh, you know, business. And, um, you know, and so we're not going to see those catastrophic type things take place in the private credit markets as much as you will in the BC BSL market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to your point, I guess it's, um, I guess it's different when you're a sponsor. Uh, and you have to sit down across the table from your lenders and actually genuinely physically look them in the eye 
and tell them how they're you know how you're sort of um taking advantage of, of a documentation loophole as opposed to a sort of relatively faceless mass of kind of syndicated investors yeah. and uh, yeah you have a face to a name you're not just talking to a, a committee you probably have four or five other investments with that group mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know because you have deep relationships and you know the sponsors have two three or four key relationships that they're doing business with mm -hmm. and it's a much bigger impact than trying to extract a tiny bit of bit of value from a company you know by utilizing a, a loophole and mm -hmm. and you know those loopholes do get yeah they get closed up faster in the private credit markets you know we often say you know covenants and what we focus on the private credit markets are slightly different than what's in the bsl market and and so you don't see those loopholes exist in documentation for us as much as you do in the public markets mm -hmm. well, again to that point um there there is one quote unquote loophole um i kind of hesitate to use that word but um there's one sort of vulnerability in private credit docs that we've been hearing a lot about lately which is the securitization basket loophole yeah. um and you know there have been some some law firms and some some lenders that have been very very focused on that and kind of concerned about companies securitizing non-traditional securitized assets such as intellectual property and that kind of thing i mean is that is that one of the loopholes that you're kind of talking about you guys being careful about closing yes exactly that i mean those are the types of things look you know you're very focused on uh maintaining value in your credit bubble right and so we can be very very focused on on that and you know in the, in the bsl markets you have the banks that are negotiating the documents and then they're finding buyers for it you know whereas in situations with private credit we're negotiating and we're the holders and mm -hmm. so um you're very much aligned in your approach and focusing on your credit bubble is obviously the primary concern mm -hmm. okay um, there has been a lot of talk lately about how we're maybe not actually headed for a recession or how we might achieve a soft landing after all, or even I heard the other day, the term no landing, um, I guess we're just <laughs> going to hover. Yeah. We're just going to hover or just keep, keep flying forever. Um, so what's your opinion? How long do you think this kind of, uh, stress, distress cycle, if you can call it that, I, I don't know what to call it exactly, is going to play out before things get, again, I'm doing air quotes here, back to yeah. normal again. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I wish I had a crystal ball. I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier, it keeps getting pushed out. And we, you know, we saw, you know, the market's expectation for a Fed pivot at the beginning year of this year is dramatically different than it is today. And, um, you know, the, the, the economy uh continues to hum right along you know i think as our view is is we do expect to see a slowdown into next year um whether that be a soft landing that's probably the consensus view right now um i know that you know when we are underwriting opportunities right now we're running multiple different rate curves against those capital structures and we're overlaying that with multiple different economic assumptions um you know, I think the one thing that is clear and fast is that maturity wall that I mentioned earlier. It does pick up in in 25, and so that could accelerate um, some of the stress, distressed. You know, I think it's more stressed than distressed. Um, and I think that collectively, there's a, a a lot of capital out there that can solve for this. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the maturity wall in the bond market is more acute than in the loan market, 
And I say that because a lot of the bonds were refinanced under a very low rate environment and the companies are enjoying that fixed rate service right now. And they are going to be impacted as they refinance into this new market, whereas the loan market obviously has reset with base rates. Um, you know, I think what we saw at the end of 21, uh, less than a quarter of the BSL market was hedged. Um, and so, you know, since then, obviously some hedging and so forth has taken place, but by and large, the companies are going to refinance into sort of the same market. They might have a higher spread, but um, they're not going to be impacted like the bond market refinancings will, will, will impact a company. Mm-hmm. So what do you reckon if you had to put a number on it? Two years, three years, four years? Well, look, I think we're already seeing uh, opportunities come about to solve uh you know, the cash interest burdens. I think we're really going to see that into next year and, it, and particularly into the back half, back half of next year. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. All right. Um, okay, so I have one final question. Uh, just going back to the the strikes in Hollywood that I mentioned yeah. at, the, at the start of the podcast. Um, since you're in LA, I feel like this is, this is a good one to, to ask you. <laughs> um, if the entire movie industry shut down and... There, were, there was no new writing. There were no actors uh, that were working and there were no more new movies ever. What would be the top two or three movies that you would be willing to rewatch over and over again for the rest of time? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Well, I am uh, the father of four daughters, young daughters. So I'm not too sure how much say I have over what we watch. <laughs> um, but I do know that the classic kind of Disney movies would be on uh, repeat. Um, and we also are big National Lampoons, particularly Christmas Vacation fans. So that would probably be the movie that I'm sure would get watched over and over in our household. And it's a movie that the entire family enjoys. Nice. Well, I can tell you that Frozen gets watched over and over again already in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah, way too much about that. I, you know, growing up as, a, as an only child, I never watched that stuff. And I know a lot more now than I, uh, you know, ever thought I would. <laughs> the other answer I was going to suggest is, uh, is Groundhog Day. Groundhog is, Day is, yeah. yes. That, that feels, yeah. feels I feel like we're living it though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very true. All right. Well, we should wrap it up there, but um, thanks, great. Chris. It's been, been a great chat. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, great. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Take care. All right. All right. Well, that's what we've got time for today. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share the love with anyone else you think might appreciate it. And don't forget to check in with my London colleagues next week for the latest on European capital markets. As for me, I'll be back the week after that. So until then, as always, take care.